0: Well, hey, welcome to First Church. So glad you're here. If you're new, my name's Chad, and I'm so excited that you decided to carve out some time to be with us as we study God's Word and worship together. We have family this morning that's meeting out at Stone Canyon, as well as others who will be joining us online. So if you would, put your hands together and welcome them into our time of study here this morning. (laughs) Now, as a dad of two young children, one thing that I've learned is you just never know what's going to come out of a kid's mouth. And I came across this video not too long ago of a dad who learned that the hard way as he tried to buckle his daughter in her car seat. Take a look at what she said. Why about you yourself? Can I help? No. i help. I don't. You can help one more. I don't eat. okay? Look can help when we are out here. Okay. Do you have this, Probably. You want me to help, Rose? No. Thank you. No, thank you. What do you want me to do? Write about yourself. <laughs> Write <Why> about yourself. <laughs> I'll do this one so. Come do that. You drive. <laughs> what about yourself? Go drive. <laughs> Go. The only advice I have for that dad is good luck with her. You know, as she gets older, boy, he's got his hands full. Just worry about yourself. I wonder if the church has ever been guilty of doing just that. Because when you read about the life of Jesus in the Gospels, what you discover is Jesus' primary focus, His primary concern was always others. And to be more precise, those who were far from God, those who didn't know God, no matter where Jesus was, no matter who He was with, no matter what He was doing, He was always on the lookout for that one, that one who needed Him, that one who was far from God, his primary focus was always others, and I wonder if that's our focus as well, because it's supposed to be. See, Jesus asked the question in Matthew chapter 18, verse 12, if a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the 99 on the hills and go to look for the one that wandered off? And Jesus lets us know, depending on how you answer that question, depends on whether or not you have his heart, because he goes on to say in Luke 15, verse 7, in the same way, there is more joy in heaven over one, one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over 99 others who are righteous and haven't strayed away. See, what we need to understand is we serve a leader who leaves the 99 to go after the One. The one who's lost, the one who's on the outside, the one who's hurting, the one who's broken, the one who's isolated and alone, the one who's far from God. That's Jesus' mission. That's His concern. And I wonder if the same could be said of us. Or are we too distracted sometimes, just worrying about ourselves? This summer at the North American Christian Convention, I heard Gene Apple speak, and he shared this stat, and I wanted to share it with you as well. He said, over half of churches in America did not add one single convert last year. Did you catch that? Over half of churches in the United States did not add one single convert last year. And why is that? Well, I'm afraid it's because a lot of times in the church the gravitational pull is more towards the 99 who are already safe in the pen than that one who's on the outside and that one who's lost. And when we allow our primary focus to be ourselves, when we allow in the church our primary focus to be our preferences and our wants and our desires, our opinions, then we lose sight. (laughs) We lose sight of what Jesus is all about. We lose sight of his vision. We lose sight of our mission. see, it's not that these churches that aren't growing, it's not that they don't have the right convictions about the lost. I mean, if you've been in church at all, you probably have the right convictions about the lost. You believe that the church exists to reach those who are far from God. We all believe that, I think. But sometimes our conviction doesn't always translate into action. Let me give you an example of this. If you've gotten to know me at all over the past seven months that I've been here, you know that I try to eat pretty healthy. I eat a lot of salads, a lot of wraps, and I eat no sweets whatsoever. Every now and then I splurge and have cappuccino. But outside of that, I don't have any sweets. And I'm just very disciplined about this. And when I started doing this, when I changed my uh, diet lifestyle, my mom noticed and she said, Chad, what are you doing? And I told her what I was doing. And when she heard me say that I don't eat any more sweets, she said, you know, I need to do that too. I eat way too many sweets. I need to cut them out. I need to do that too. I was like, well, Mom, if you're serious, I'll hold you accountable, and we'll do this together. And she's like, yeah, sure, that's great. So she decided to cut out sweets. Well, a week or so passed, and she invited my family to come over to her and my dad's house, and she invited my brother and his family to come over too. So all the family was over, and she fixed this great meal, and she fixed for us salad so we could have that with some uh, grilled chicken. It was great. It was healthy. But then it came time for dessert, and she pulled out a derby pie. Now, do you guys know what derby pie is? Do you have a derby pie oklahoma anybody know i'm talking about okay a few of you you guys need to figure out what this is it is manna from heaven i mean it is awesome derby pie is my favorite pie in all the world Now, don't look it up and fix it for me because i'm not going to eat it but still i love it if i was going to cheat and go and have some sweets i would go right for derby pie but she pulls out this derby pie and as much as i love derby pie i love my mom's derby pie you know the best because it's just awesome and so she pulls it out of the oven and it's freshly baked and all that And she says, you know, Chad, are you sure you don't want a piece? And I'm thinking, are you trying to test me or tempt me? I mean, we just had this conversation. I was like, no, get behind me, Satan. I do not want your pie. But so she cuts a piece, and she cuts a piece for Allison and for Alex, for my brother and his wife. She cuts a piece for my dad. And then she cuts one more piece. And I'm like, Mom, who's that piece for? And she said, well, it's for me. And I said, I thought you were going to cut out sweets, She said, well, yeah, I am, but, you know, I've got all the family over. It's a special occasion. I'm just going to splurge this one time. And my dad laughed out loud, and he goes, what's your excuse every other day of the week? Because apparently my mom hadn't really cut out sweets. She said she was going to, but she hadn't done it yet. See, she had the right conviction. She knew sweets were bad for her, but her conviction hadn't yet turned into action. And I wonder if that's not the state of many churches in our culture today. See, as we begin this new series today, this fall series, this isn't going to be a bunch of sermons about how we should care about the lost. You've heard those sermons before. You've heard those sermons preached before. No, what I simply want to do in this series is ask the question, as a church, are we really, and I mean really, living out those convictions? Because we all understand the concept of leaving the 99 to go after the 1, but are we really doing that? Is that what first church is known for? Because that's what Jesus was known for. And I think it's unfortunate But way too many churches in our culture today have settled for paying for mission rather than engaging in mission. And what I mean by that is people come to church, and they put money in the offering plate, and they support the ministries of the church, but they expect the paid staff to do the real mission work. They expect the vocational missionaries that we support overseas to do the real mission work. But is that what Jesus had in mind when he started the church? I don't think so. Jesus told a parable one time in Luke chapter 14 about a master who threw a great banquet. And in this parable, listen to how he instructs his followers. Listen to what Jesus says, Luke 14, 22. There is still room for more at the master's banquet. Go. Out into the country lanes and behind the hedges and urge anyone. Urge anyone you find to come so that my house will be full. That word urge in the text literally means compel or to persuade, to convince. When Jesus says go, what he's telling us to do is leave where we are. And go out to the outskirts of our communities. Go out where no one else is and find whoever you can and urge them, compel them, persuade them to come home to the Father. And what's interesting is when Jesus gives this set of instructions, he's not just talking to paid staff of a church. He's not just talking to vocational missionaries overseas. He's talking to anyone who claims to be a follower of His. And I want you to notice the urgency in this language here, in this parable. Jesus wants us to go with a sense of urgency because time is of the essence. And Jesus is letting us all know if we claim to be one of His followers, then we are, we are missionaries for Him. Now I know when you hear the word missionary, probably what pops into your mind is a picture of somebody you know, leaving the states and going overseas to share the gospel with some you know, foreign people group or whatever. And that is a type of missionary, a very important type of missionary. But what I want you to understand today is the word missionary, that term literally just means one who is sent. So in that way, we are all missionaries. Because Jesus is sending every one of us to go wherever we can go and to share the good news with them. So all of us can't go overseas, I get that. But every single one of us in this room today, every single one of us watching online or one of our campuses, we are called to be missionaries to the people we encounter every single day. We are sent by Jesus with a sense of urgency to tell them that there's a place for them at God's table And the reason why I think there's this urgency in Jesus' language in this passage is because those neighbors and co-workers and people we encounter on a daily basis who are far from God, those are God's kids who are hurting, who are broken because of sin, who are lonely, who He desperately wants to see come home. I mentioned that I went to the North American Christian Convention this summer, and while we were there, Alice and I, we were leaving one of the main sessions, and we had dropped our kids off at the children's programming. And so we were leaving this main session, and all of a sudden, this guy caught me, a guy who I really didn't know real well, uh, but I knew who he was, and he said, hey, you're Chad from First Church, right? And I was like, yeah, that's me. How do you know me? And he said, somebody told him about me, and so we started talking. And he let me know that they were having this private kind of exclusive luncheon for megachurch preachers. They were going to have some of the convention speakers there, some Christian authors there. It's kind of a big deal, but it was all like under wraps. Like it wasn't in the program or anything. I didn't even know that luncheons like that went on. And so he was inviting me personally to come to this luncheon. And so I felt very honored. And I was like, well, that's really cool. And i was surprised I was even getting invited. But still, I was excited about it. And so he's talking to me. And then he starts to talk about uh, himself. and then he asked me how First Church is going in my ministry. So we're having this in-depth conversation. And Allison says, I'm going to go get the kids because they're still in the children's programming and I'll bring them back. I'll meet you right here. I was like, okay, that's cool. So I keep having this conversation with this guy and we're just talking back and forth. And all of a sudden, I felt my phone, my cell phone in my pocket vibrate. And in a moment of weakness, in a moment of selfishness, I thought... Here I am at a Christian conference with my family, I'm away from home, I'm having this real important conversation with this guy who's really stroking my ego, and he's inviting me to go to this awesome luncheon that I didn't even know existed, you know, and I'm listening to him talk, and he's telling me it's going to be this real fancy steakhouse where the steak's like a hundred bucks a piece and whatever, and I've, you know, normally I don't eat at a place like that, and I'm just kind of overwhelmed by this moment, I'm thinking, whoever is texting me right now can wait. Whoever is texting me can just wait. So my phone vibrated a couple more times in my pocket, and I didn't even check it. I just kept going in this conversation. And then as I kept talking with this gentleman, one of my buddies, another minister I know, ran up to me, and he grabbed my arm, and I thought, well, this is rude. Can't he tell that I'm having a serious conversation here? He grabbed my arm, and he said, Chad, have you talked with Allison? I was like, yeah, she just left a few minutes ago. Yeah, I saw her just a second ago. He said, no, she's been trying to get a hold of you. When she went to pick up your kids, they were going down an escalator, and Alex let go of her hand, and he fell down the escalator. And he's okay, but he's bruised up, and he's scared, and he's crying for his daddy. Guys, I don't even remember saying bye to that man I was talking to. I just made a beeline in the direction of my son. Nothing was more important than him in that moment. That conversation I was having didn't matter at all anymore. The only thing that mattered was me getting to my son, who was hurt, who was scared, who was crying out for his dad. And what would have happened is that if, if as I turned to go see Alex, if that man that I was talking to said, Hey, wait, 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 hang on a second, Chad, we didn't finalize our lunch plans yet. That would have been a great conversation to have if my son wasn't hurting and scared. But in that moment, that conversation just wasn't appropriate. The only thing that mattered was my son. And nothing was going to keep me from getting to my son. Guys, the people around us who don't know Jesus, the people around us, who are far from God, our neighbors, our co-workers, the people that are on our ball teams, the people we're in school with, whoever, those people who are far from God, they are God's kids. And they're hurting. And they're broken because of what sin has done to them. And the only thing that matters to God is getting them home. He wants them to be safe. He wants more than anything to bring them back. To bring them back home where they belong. And sometimes in the church we get caught up in conversations that honestly are not appropriate. Because we're talking about stuff that doesn't matter to God at all when His kids are right outside hurting and crying out for help. And we get so distracted, focused on our needs and our wants and our desires. And God is saying, my kids are crying out for help, go out and get them. Because nothing matters more to God than bringing His kids back home. Guys, I've been convicted for some time that we need to shake things up in the church today. I think instead of waiting for people to come to us, which has been the strategy of many churches for many years... You know, just have the best programming and the best performances and the best activities and the best whatever and people will come to you. I think we need to shake things up because that's not working. I think we actually need to do what Jesus said and go. Go find. Go find those who are far from God and bring them home. See, what if we created a culture here at First Church where we were willing to do whatever it takes, short of sin of course, We're going to do whatever it takes to reach those who are far from God. What if we didn't see ourselves just as a moral country club, but we saw ourselves as missionaries to the 918? Because whether you realize it or not, we do live in a mission field. Tim Harlow, in his book Life on Mission, writes these words. Pay careful attention to the stats that he shares. He says, America now makes up one of the largest mission fields in the world. 195 million people don't go to church. 195 people don't go to church in the United States. If these people were a nation, it would be the fifth largest country in the world. The percentage of Americans who don't claim any kind of religious worldview has gone from only 15% of the 1950s to 60% in 2010. I think it's safe to say that we live in a mission field. We just don't act like it. That last line really got to me. We live in a mission field. We just don't act like it. But what if we started to act like it? What if we became more intentional about reaching those who are far from Christ? What if all of us committed over the next year to invest in one person, one life who's far from God? What if we committed to praying for that one person every single day What if we look for specific opportunities to engage with that person, to befriend that person, to show the love of Jesus to that person, to disciple that person? And what if that one person that we're invested in eventually came to Christ over the course of the next year? And so then the next year we invest in somebody else and that person that we already invested in, they invest in someone else. And then two more people come to know Christ. Do you realize that if that pattern continued, person by person, year by year, that over a course of a lifetime, we could have the chance to influence over a billion lives? That's not an exaggeration. It's not a joke. It's not a gimmick. And most importantly, it's not impossible. But it all starts with each one of us asking the question who's my one? Who's one person in my life that I can invest in? Who's one person that God wants me to pay attention to? Who's one person that I can reach? Because here's the thing, no one can reach everyone, but everyone can reach someone. I can't reach everybody. You can't reach everybody. But there's someone that each of us can reach. So who's the one person in your life you see every single day who needs to know the one Who's that one in your life who everyone else overlooks, everyone else ignores? Who's that one in your life who's hurting, who's alone, who's isolated, who feels empty? Who's that one that if Jesus were physically walking beside you on a daily basis, he would stop and notice, he would stop and pay attention to? Who's the one person that your life keep keep intersecting with that needs to know the one? Who's your one? Because I believe that there is someone right now in your life, and I mean your life. There is someone right now in your life that God wants you to reach, and that God has given you the opportunity to reach if you'll just look for them. No one can reach everyone, but everyone can reach someone. So, who's your one? Now, you might be thinking, Chad, I don't have a one. I don't know who you're talking about. All of my friends are Christians. All of my friends come from my small group here at First Church. I mean, I listen to Christian music. I shop at Christian bookstores. I even go on Christian cruises for vacation. I mean, I don't have a one. What are you talking about? Well, if that's your mindset, I think God wants me to challenge that mindset today. How many of you as kids like playing the game Hide and Seek? Let me see by show of hands. Anybody like playing Hide and Seek? Okay, just about everybody. That's what I thought. How many of you still like to play Hide and Seek as adults? Anybody? I do. My family, we play Hide and Seek all the time. Alex loves to play Hide and Seek. He's not very good at it, but he still loves to play. And I remember about a year ago, we were playing Hide and Seek. We still live back in Kentucky. And I was in the kitchen counting, and Alex went to go hide. And so I hit 20. That's what we always count to. And I said, 20, ready or not, here I come. And I went to go find Alex. And I walked into our living room room, and we had this very floor lamp in our living room, and this is how I found Alex, hiding like this with his eyes shut, as if if he can't see me, then I can't see him, you know, and so I was like, Alex, I see you. He's like, well, I can't see you, as if, you know, because he couldn't see me, then he was hid. I was like, buddy, I see you. I just found you, and I wonder if sometimes those people who are far from God, if they're not as difficult to find as we might think, if they're not as well hid as we might think, I wonder if they're out there if we just look for them. And here's the thing, deep down, most of those people who seem so disinterested in God, I think they really want to be found. Because what's the real point of hide and seek? You might say to hide, right? To find a good hiding spot. Not really, The real point of hide and seek is to be found. Because if you're never found, then it's no fun, right? The fun of hide and seek is being found. I mean, do you know anybody out there right now who's still hiding and saying, hey, it's been 10 years and still nobody's found me? No, of course not. That's no fun. What's the point of playing if no one ever finds you? We all want to be found. And if you're like me, if you're playing hide and seek and it takes people a while to find you and you've been there for a while, you know what I do? I start to make noise. Like I start to cough or you know, beat on a wall or something. Maybe I'll put an arm out or a you know leg out or something. Like, hey, I'm over here, come find me. I do do this with Alex all the time. Because in our house, there's only a few good hiding spots, and you should know them by now. But still, he has trouble finding Allison or me when we're hiding. And so after a while, he just gives up and he'll say, Okay, Daddy, make noise, where are you? And I'll start banging. On a wall or whatever, and then he'll come find me because that's the point of hide and seek, right? Eventually, you want to be found. And those people that are out there who seem so disinterested in God, I think if you look closely, there's an arm out, there's a leg out, they're coughing, they're making noise, they're trying to get our attention because deep down they really want to be found. But way too often, We're too focused on ourselves to see that person who's hiding behind a lamp. So who's the one in your life who's hiding in the shadows right now because you haven't looked for them? Who's the one who's hiding but not really hiding? Who's the one who's crying out, crying out to be found, but you walk right past them every single day? Because that's what Jesus was so good at, Jesus was good at finding that one, seeing that one that no one else saw, that no one else wanted to see. And I want to give you a brief example of that found in Luke chapter 5. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to Luke chapter 5. And we're going to see a situation where Jesus sees someone that either others didn't want to see or just didn't see. And it's found in Luke 5, verse 27, and the Scripture says this, After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect, the religious guys, they complained to his disciples. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now I think this scene in Luke chapter 5, it loses some of its shock value for us because we don't have a cultural equivalent to a tax collector in our day and age. But what you need to understand the first century world, the Jews hated tax collectors and especially a Jewish tax collector, meaning a tax collector who was a Jew by birth. They were the lowest on the food chain. They were the lowest of the low, and they were the lowest of the low for two reasons. One, they cheated people out of money. You see, they would collect, tax collectors would collect a lot more money than what Rome required of them, and so they would pocket that extra for themselves, and they would cheat people out of their hard-earned money. But second, which was far worse in the mind of an ancient Jew, was that these guys were employed by the Roman government. And the Jews were a conquered people. They wanted to be free, and they were a conquered people. So a Jewish tax collector was one who had sold out to the Romans, one who had sold out to the Roman government. They were considered a traitor among traitors. So among the Jews, there were sinners, and then there were tax collectors below that. They hated tax collectors. And if you were born a first-century Jew, you were raised to hate a guy like Levi, So you're living in this culture. You've been brought up in this culture. And all of a sudden, this new young rabbi named Jesus comes on the scene. And Jesus is in your town. And all of a sudden, he's walking by Levi's tax-collecting booth. Now, here's the thing. People have been talking about this Jesus. There's a lot of buzz surrounding him. People are saying that he might be the Messiah. He might be the one sent from God to save God's people. And so you're watching Jesus very closely, especially as he passes by this tax-collecting booth because you expect Jesus as one sent from God to turn to Levi and call him out you expect Jesus to turn to Levi and say how dare you how dare you cheat your own people cheat God's people how dare you align yourself with the enemy how dare you be so corrupt you expect Jesus to call Levi out how dare you but instead you see Jesus strike up a friendly conversation with Levi And by the end of the conversation, Levi is inviting Jesus to come back to his house for a party, for a banquet. And here's the kicker, Jesus goes. He accepts Levi's invitation. What? That's not supposed to happen. You hate Levi. You've been brought up to hate Levi. Every good Jew would have hated Levi. And that's exactly what the religious people think. Luke 5, verse 30 says, But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to Jesus' disciples. Why do you guys eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? They're upset about this. But Jesus isn't phased. He isn't fazed by their complaints, by their criticism. Instead, Jesus responds in verse 31, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. In other words, Jesus is saying, you may hate Levi. You may want to ignore Levi. You may want to shun Levi. You may give Levi dirty looks. But today, Levi is my one. I came for Levi. Levi is why I'm here. Levi is one who matters to God. And I think as we look at this example, we can learn something from it. Because those ones out there in your life that you often overlook, that other people maybe hate even, other people are annoyed by, those ones that everybody else can't stand, they matter to God. Because God's grace is for every one. And Jesus shows us in this passage how we can introduce those ones to the grace of God, so I want you to notice a few things. First of all, I want you to notice how Jesus made followers because he made friends. Jesus made followers because he made friends. Before he ever asked somebody to follow him, he would befriend them. See, in this culture, to have a meal at someone's house, that was a sign of friendship. By Jesus saying, Levi, I'm going to come back to your house, and I'm going to join in the party you're throwing, what he's publicly declaring is, Levi is my friend friend and here's a practical application we can take from this we'll never have a chance to disciple someone until we first get to know them until we care about them ourselves until they know that we care about them and here's what I've discovered behind every person is a story and if you took the time to get to know a person's story you might understand why they act the way they act why they do the things they do why they say the things they say And I wonder if anyone ever stopped to ask Levi's story. I wonder if anybody ever said, you know, why is Levi a tax collector? Because no Jewish boy wanted to grow up to be a tax collector. Tax collectors were despised. They were hated. They were shunned. I mean, why in the world would anybody want to be a tax collector? Did anybody ever ask Levi why? Why he did it? Why he was a tax collector? Was he orphaned as a child? Did his dad die and so he had to provide for his mom and siblings in some way? Did he have some type of physical handicap so he wasn't able to do other things but he could sit behind a tax collector's booth? Did he have a sick child and so he needed to make some quick cash? I don't know. But I know one thing, when Jesus looked at Levi, he didn't just see a tax collector, he looked past that and he saw Levi's heart. And he knew that Levi didn't want to be where he was. He knew Levi's story. And he knew Levi wanted to be somewhere else. See, we're never going to be able to reach someone until we take the time to get to know them. Until they know we care about them. Until we start to love them as Jesus loves them. Until we get to know their heart. Jesus was a master at this. People knew he cared about them. And before we can start to make followers of Jesus, we've got to make friends. So when I say who's your one, I'm not telling you to get out there and Bible browse somebody or you know, just preach at them and you need Jesus. I'm not telling you to go to somebody's house and knock on their door and say, if you died tonight, would you go to heaven? I'm not saying do that because I'm not sure if that works in this culture. Really, I'm not sure if that approach ever worked for the long term. Jesus' approach? Show them you love them. Show them you care about them. Show them that they matter to you, that they matter to God. And then, when you love like Jesus, there'll be an open door for you to tell them about Jesus. So first of all, Jesus made followers because he made friends. Second, I want you to notice how Jesus went where Levi was. Jesus could have avoided a lot of trouble and controversy if he just would have met Levi at the local synagogue rather than going to Levi's house. But he didn't. Levi went to I mean, Jesus went to Levi's house because that's where Levi felt comfortable. And that's where Levi's friends were, who were more people who didn't know about God, who were far from God. You see, Levi only followed Jesus because Jesus came after Levi. And one of our biggest mistakes in the church today is that we have equated separation from sin with isolation from from sinners. Now, I understand that some cautious wisdom is needed here. Because if you struggle with alcoholism, you probably don't need to go to a bar to witness to people. Especially if that's a temptation for you. There are other places you can go to witness to people. I mean, if you struggle with a gambling addiction, you probably don't need to go have dinner with some people at a casino. And as parents, we don't want our kids exposed to certain things because they're not spiritually mature enough to handle it. I get that. I understand that. But here's the reality. If we follow Jesus, we are missionaries. And missionaries step out of their comfort zones to reach people in theirs. Jesus left where he was to go where people were to make it possible for them to live where he is. And he calls us to do the same. And sometimes we'll get criticized for doing that. Guys, when we really have the mindset that we want to become all things to all people, as the Apostle Paul says, and when we have this mindset that we're willing to do whatever it takes short of sin to reach people who are far from God, we are going to get criticized for it. But here's the thing. If I'm going to get criticized for the things that Jesus got criticized for, I'm okay with that. When I first started in ministry, I had this idea that I wanted to please everybody. You know, I'm somebody I like to be liked. Most of us like to be liked, right? So when I started off in ministry... I wanted to please everybody. I wanted to make everybody happy. And so I've been over backwards trying to make everyone happy. Even at times when I saw people in the church who weren't exactly capturing God's vision, I still wanted to make those people happy too. And so I've been over backwards to do just that. And you know what I learned? You know what I have learned after 15 years of preaching ministry, and I've been in a small church, and a mid-sized church, and now in a large church? You know what I've learned? No matter how hard you try to please people, you're still going to get criticized. No matter what. And so if I'm going to get criticized, I might as well get criticized for the things that Jesus got criticized for. And how many times was Jesus criticized for hanging out with sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes and the like? And I'm okay with that. One time I was accused of our church making it too easy for people to come to church. And I thought, what? I mean, this guy meant well, but he said, I don't like your church. You just make it too easy for people to be part of the church. And I thought... What? You want us to make it hard? I mean, you want us to make it difficult for people to come to church? What I didn't quite understand what the guy meant. And he was upset because we had changed our service times to make it more convenient for people to come on Sunday. That's what he was upset about. Guys, I'm willing to do whatever it takes short of sin to bring God's kids home. And I believe that's what God wants us to do. And so we're not going to apologize here at first church when it comes to our strategy, our ministry strategy if it leans a little bit towards those on the outside. It doesn't mean we take our eyes off those on the inside. It doesn't mean that we don't disciple people on the inside and we don't want spiritual growth for those on the inside. But we're not going to apologize for our ministry strategy leaning more towards those on the outside because we serve a leader, we serve a Lord who left the 99 to go after the one. And he expects us to do the same. So we need to go where our Levi's are. We need to go where our ones are. And the last thing I want you to see from this passage is that Jesus saw kingdom potential in everyone. Jesus saw kingdom potential in everyone. When Jesus met Levi, he didn't give Levi a lecture about his past, though he gave him an opportunity at a better future. I love Jesus' simple but powerful request of Levi, follow me. And I want you to catch that Jesus offered this invitation to Levi when Levi was at his worst. He offered this invitation to the absolute worst version of Levi. Jesus didn't come to Levi and say, okay, Levi, I see potential in you, so I'm going to go away for a month and come back. And during that month, you get your life together. You get all cleaned up. And then once everything's cleaned up, then you can follow me. That's not what Jesus did. Jesus said, Levi, where you are right now, follow me me. Because here's the thing, the I am changes as is people. That's how it works. You will find story after story after story in the Gospels of somebody following Jesus and then Jesus changes them. But you're going to be hard-pressed to find an example of someone who got their life all cleaned up all together and then they follow Jesus. That's not how it works. We follow Jesus where we are and the I am changes as is people. Jesus didn't see Levi as a problem, but a patient who needed God's grace. And here's the thing, God's grace wasn't wasted on Levi. You may know Levi by another name. He was also, he was later called Matthew. You know Matthew who wrote the first book in the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew? Matthew who died for his faith so that others could come and know the one who passed by his tax collector's booth that day? Matthew has influenced billions of lives for the sake of Christ. All because Jesus saw potential in him that no one else did. And the same could be said of your coworker, your family member, your friend, your neighbor, your one. Whoever they may be who doesn't know Jesus. And so my question is, Who's your Levi? Who's your one? So what I want to do is I want to challenge our church. So many churches have just settled for, hey, we'll just have a good programs and good activities here and we want people to come As No, I want to challenge our church to be a church that lives every day as missionaries, live as missionaries to the 918, and then go out and find our ones and reach them. And so as you leave the auditorium today, We have these little green bracelets available and we want everyone to get one. They just read, Love Jesus, Love Light Jesus. That's our mission statement here. I want you to put this on over the course of this series, Who's Your One? I want you to wear it every day so that when you're at school or at work or in your neighborhood or wherever, you'll look down and you'll see that bracelet and you'll remember to look for your one because I'm telling you, they're out there. They're not near as well hit as you might think. And if you'll look for them, you'll see them Sticking out an arm, sticking out a leg, coughing, making some noise. Because deep down, they really want to be found. Your one is waiting. And I believe God is anticipating your life intersecting with their life, whoever he or she may be. And I believe if our whole church got around this concept, who's your one? Our church a year from now will be a totally different place. But not only that, Northeast Oklahoma will be a totally different place. Who's your one? Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you so much for today, for the time we've had to meet together as your people in this place. And Father, this subject that I just preached on, it's heavy on my heart because I grew up in churches that just waited for people to come to them, but that's not what your Son has instructed us. Father, your Son has instructed us to go and seek those who are on the outskirts. Go seek those who are outside of the 99. Our ones are out there. And so Father, open up doors of opportunity for this church, First Church, to reach our ones, whoever they may be. And Father, I pray a big prayer today that we will look back a year from this date and we will say, wow, what a different place our church is, what a different place our community is because we trusted in you, Father. And we went out and followed your son's example and we reached our ones. Father, thank you so much for Jesus. May we never lose sight of his vision. May we be like him. May we be a church that leaves the 99 to find that one. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.